1: Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co.
2: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers. Back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
3: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
0: Hey guys, this is Jake Halpern, host of Deep Cover. We're currently working on season two and we'll be sure to let you know when it will be coming out. But in the meantime, we have our first bonus episode for you, the supply side. Today's bonus episode, it's actually a story that I really wanted to include in season one In fact, to tell you the truth, I had this big debate with my producer, Karen Shikurji. I kept saying, look, we gotta include this story. She was like, it's awesome, but it's kind of a tangent, like a crazy side trip, and it just doesn't fit. Karen, she was right. Kind of annoyingly, she's almost always right. But fortunately, this story, it's perfect for a bonus episode. Because one thing that we really didn't get into during season one was the suppliers, the Colombians. The guys who actually harvested all those crops of marijuana. If you recall, that's where Ned ultimately wanted to go, down to Colombia. He had a source named Simone, who had all kinds of connections down there.
1: These are the people that would have supplied the drugs to, like, Lee Rich. They're the people that controlled everything on the north coast of Colombia.
0: But in the end, and spoiler alert here, guys, so if you haven't heard episode 9 yet, hit pause. Because Ned ends up leaving the FBI. And the suppliers, well, they just kind of slipped away. Naturally, this was one piece of the puzzle that still really intrigued me. So in this episode, we're gonna do a deep dive into the marijuana industry down in Colombia, And our guide, interestingly enough, is a guy who once helped supply Mike Vogel back in the
2: day. Remember Mike? I had it in such a way that I really control the marijuana industry in Michigan, and Ann Arbor and all the rest.
0: He was the grocery guy, the distributor with the big warehouse. Anyway, I heard about this supplier from a customs agent, and I was intrigued. I had this one question in particular that I wanted to run by him. If you remember from season one, our smugglers had all this product stuck down in Columbia, one million pounds of marijuana. And so I'm kind of wondering...
4: What does a million pounds of marijuana look like? A fucking mountain.
0: (laughs) That's Tommy Powell.
4: My name is either Tommy, Tom, or Thomas, depending on who I'm talking to. Tommy is to my friends. Tom is people that don't know me, and Thomas is for the government. I'm 72. I'm a lifelong vegetarian. I'm in great health. And I look forward to another 30 or 40 years.
0: Tommy was a self-identified smuggler and salesman for about a decade. He started in the early 70s. He was this American expat, he used to live and work down in Colombia inspecting marijuana crops. He's responsible for bringing in over 300,000 pounds of marijuana himself. Not just that. He estimates he helped supply a bunch of other smugglers who brought in somewhere in the range of two to three million pounds. But Tommy was the guy who would be on the ground in Colombia, and would often find himself in some pretty dicey situations. He's lived a crazy life, even by the standards of the characters you got to know in season one.
4: Jake, I can't describe the walk into the mountains. I mean, so treacherous, so treacherous. There was this one section. It's probably a hundred yards where there's a walk. It's probably about three feet wide, and uh, it's over this cliff, and the drop is probably a thousand feet or 500 feet or something. Some seriously scary. If you look over the edge when you're walking, you really don't want to do that.
0: So, how does Tommy? a dude from Michigan, end up living down in Columbia inspecting marijuana crops. Turns out, it's kind of a wild story. Initially, he was a dealer in Ann Arbor, around the same time Mike Vogel was getting started.
4: Mike Vogel, I'm familiar with. He used to sell my reefer in Detroit before he got involved with those other criminals.
0: At the time, Tommy says he was smuggling his reefer, as he calls it, in from Mexico. But the product, eh, wasn't so great. Nothing to brag about. Eventually Tommy gets in trouble with the law when a drug-sniffing dog named Bomber finds a footlocker of weed at the airport. Police played it sly and followed the footlocker as it was picked up and then taken to a house. The cops eventually barged in and made arrests. Tommy, he was at the house. He got arrested. We found news articles documenting all this, by the way. Bottom line, this is bad news for Tommy. But Tommy says that his case was thrown out because the judge ruled it was an illegal search and seizure. Bomber apparently was not authorized to sniff that footlocker. Still, it was a close call. And so Tommy decides to go clean for a while anyhow.
4: So I said, ah, I'm retiring. So I decided to go to um, Gainesville and visit my brother, Billy. And at that time, waterbeds were real popular. And so I filled up my van with like about uh, 50 water beds and uh, drove down to Gainesville and started selling them out of the back of my van. And so I was so successful at it. I mean, I was doing really good. I was selling thousands of them.
0: But as you've probably gathered, he gets drawn back into the marijuana business. He meets a guy who offers him some new product imported from Jamaica. This, by the way, is the early 1970s and the export market for Jamaican weed is expanding in the US. The branding, for lack of a better word, was good. Bob Marley was becoming a household name. Tommy says the Jamaican buds were a real upgrade from the Mexican stuff that he'd been peddling.
4: So I started uh, taking his Jamaicans up to Ann Arbor and I probably sold, Jesus, I I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 pounds maybe of his reefer. So while I'm selling it, I'm getting this, oh, shit, this stuff is not good. It's not good. It's good. It's better than that Mexican shit, but it's not good. So I put it in my mind. I said, man, I'm going to go to Colombia and see if I can get some better reefer out of there.
0: And the reason that he says this is because at some point he gets a chance to smoke some of that Colombian weed.
4: I think I was at a party in Ann Arbor. And these, there were some hipsters there, and they had some Colombian marijuana. And we smoked it, and I smoked it, and I go, holy shit, man, we got to get this stuff. You know? It
2: was that much better.
4: It was two times, three times better. It looked better, you know. And it was definitely had a higher THC content, in it for sure.
0: Then one day, two of Tommy's friends, Ronnie and Dave, propose a kind of spur-of-the-moment trip.
4: They said, hey, let's go to uh, Colombia. I says, yeah, man, let's go to Columbia, go up the north coast, and see if we can find something out up there. You know, this Jamaican shit's getting boring. So we got on a plane, a La Javianca flight out of Miami, and Ronnie comes up like 10 minutes after the flight's going and says, hey, man, you want to take a hit of acid? Oh, my Lord.
2: <laughs>
4: so I says, yeah, man, I'll take a hit of acid. Landed in Bogota and proceeded to go directly to the closest uh, house of ill repute and got an ounce of cocaine and, like, five bottles of old par scotch and sat in there and drank in there and did other nefarious things. And I crawled out the front door.
0: Tommy says that by this point, Ronnie and Dave, his two buddies that he'd flown down with, they were in rough shape
4: they were so freaked out they didn't want to stay. So I don't want to stay either because I'd be all alone then. And I didn't know anybody, you know. So we hopped back on a plane and flew back to Miami.
2: When you went to Columbia that first time, did you actually make contact with any uh, marijuana sellers?
4: No, just just with the the ladies of the night.
0: A few months later, Tommy gives it another go. And he has a bold plan. He wants to set up a 20,000-pound shipment of weed. He heads back down to Colombia, this time skips the whole acid trip, brothel visit, and actually manages to get an introduction to a reputable supplier.
4: A very cool, nice Colombian guy, the nicest guy you want to run into in the world. And uh, we, his nickname, we nicknamed him Uncle, and his name was Guillermo Avila. He's going up in the mountains, talking to the farmers, getting whatever he can from, and he's bringing us back samples and stuff like that. So it's the stuff's awesome. So yeah, yeah, we'll take twenty thousand. He says, yeah, okay, I can do twenty thousand. I says, well, cool. And when it comes down to loading night, he only had sixteen thousand. But uh, that's how the Colombian market started.
0: Tommy says he was the guy like the pioneer who first smuggled really big loads of Colombian weed to the United States. It's a bold claim, and one that I couldn't totally verify, but the timing of it is right. Starting in the mid-1970s, weed from Mexico kind of lost its popularity, in part because Mexican authorities began using a herbicide known as paraquat to poison marijuana crops down there. According to declassified CIA documents, American consumers began to, quote, prefer the better manicured and reputedly more potent Colombian marijuana, end quote. Tommy says he was the guy who first brought in large quantities of this more potent stuff, starting in 1972. It's a really big success. He buys the weed for $6 a pound and sells it for $240 a pound back in Michigan. And it's really good stuff. He keeps making trips down there each year.
4: I tried to always get my loads together and make sure they were ready by December, or, or I had a trip together by December because that's when they did the harvest, and that's when they had the best marijuana. Anybody that else that goes to Colombia, you know, they all went down there and they would take anything. They'd stash that reefer in warehouses, you know, and it'd be like eight, ten months old. You know, it'd just be trash weed. You know, and then they also packed it in bricks, these big 50 pound bricks where they use a, they use a press, a pressing machine and pressed it all down tight, you know, and screwed up all the buds, you know? So I started to, I demanded that none of mine be pressed like that. I wanted mine to be in pillows, we call them.
0: Nice, fluffy pillows of high quality weed. That was the key. Tommy ended up making a lot of money. So much money, in fact, that he decides to hide some of it in the ground. He puts $383,840 in a suitcase and buried it on some land that he owned in Michigan. Sometime later, this hunter comes along, finds it, and being a good Samaritan, the hunter hands it over to the state police. Tommy then tried to get the suitcase and the money back. He actually shows up with a receipt for the suitcase proving that, hey, I purchased this particular handbag. He even gave a sworn statement saying the money was his. But he took the fifth when it came to explaining how he got it. No dice. The police wouldn't hand it over. The suitcase, though, it made big news. Newspapers in Detroit wrote about it. It was even mentioned on an episode of 60 Minutes. None of this notoriety was especially good for Tommy in the long run. He says it really put him on the authorities' radar. Not long after this, he was indicted by the feds. So, naturally, Tommy decides to run for it, become a fugitive. He flies to Europe, spends some time and some money there, and then he bounces around a bit to Morocco the Canary Islands, down to the Bahamas, before deciding where
4: he'll land next. That's oh hell. Man, I might as well get it over with. I'll just go to Columbia. They're not going to extradite me out of there. They're never going to get me out of there, you know? I had the world's baddest-ass bodyguards. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up in Colombia. I wanted to be safe.
2: Well, relatively safe.
0: There was always the danger that he'd fall off one of those cliffs. Or worse. More on this when we come back after the break.
1: Take your business further at tmobile.com/slash now. Are you
3: ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world.
0: So, Tommy, who's under indictment in the United States, spends some time on the Lamb, and then moves down to Columbia. He deepens his connections there makes more trips out to the countryside to inspect the weed that he wants to buy. Now, typically, he didn't do this in the fields, but at these makeshift marijuana warehouses that were set up right at the base of the mountains. And all the while, Tommy says that he maintained his distribution network back in Michigan.
4: I controlled the boats and the unloading spots, the trucks, and the market in Ann Arbor. You know, already at that point.
2: You're telling me that you weren't just working supply side. You were actually, like, complete system. Like, you were there at the supply. Yeah, what do you
4: call it? uh, Vertically integrated. Vertically integrated marijuana business. (laughs) I always did it all myself.
2: It's interesting because, like, with Lee Rich and his group, they basically always just Subcontracted out the supply. They had they had supply partners. If I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that like you manage the supply side yourself personally.
4: Yep, I would go out like three days a week and go inspect marijuana. And I would inspect marijuana for other people too. You know, because these some of these smugglers, quote unquote, they they didn't know. How to get it, where to get it, who to get it from, and how it was going to be safe, and how much they were going to pay, and all that shit. I would take care of all that, especially for my friends.
2: Wait, so were you like, were you like a consultant when you say you're doing this for other people? Are you are you charging them?
4: Oh, yeah, I would charge them. i get part of the load.
2: You're like the guy, like, you're the equivalent of, like, the Costco guy who, like, comes in to check out the coffee beans or, like, the grapes or something to make sure that they're up to Costco standard. Yeah,
4: it's
0: on one of these quality inspection trips that Tommy visits what he calls a, quote, mountain of marijuana out in the Guajira Desert. And that's how he knew how to answer my question. What does a million pounds of marijuana look like?
4: It was uh, it was up in the Guajira, and I was looking for a load of 60,000, I think, and, uh, shh, and say, well, well we're going to take you to this load here, and you can pick out whatever you want. Well, it was getting late in the day, and... We decided that we didn't want to drive in the while at night just something you really don't want to do. And because you got M-19 and, uh, and uh, F-A-Dose, F-2, you know, just the FBI in Colombia and then the, uh, the DOS is uh, the CIA. Wait, wait, can you
2: just go back and, and, and explain this again? Do you help me visualize a million pounds of marijuana? Like, what does it look like?
4: Well, when you're driving up to it, it's like a like a big mound, or you know, and it was all piled up into like a peak, and that's where we went and built our little fort to spend the night in. Yeah, 30 feet, 35, somewhere in there.
2: Wow, that's like a three-story tall building.
4: It was totally amazing.
2: We so. So you're telling me you climbed up on top of this mountain of marijuana and you built a fort out of the marijuana? Yeah. We'll put up little, you know, put
4: up little uh, walls and stuff, you know. and You know, they're like bricks, they're like building blocks. Hell, it's like, a, you know, a rector set or something, you know. I mean, what are those, what's that place where they have all the plastic blocks and they build castles and shit out of them here in Florida? There's the Danish company. Legos? Yeah, Legos. Yeah, it was like a Lego. It was a marijuana Lego.
0: It's while he's building his Lego fort that he gets a sense for exactly what kind of weed
4: this is. So we we went up to the top of the mountain and started digging out all the bales, you know. These were all like, uh, these were hard-pressed bales, you know. We I never did the hard pressed bales because well I did them in the beginning because I didn't know any better. I was spent the whole next day going through the whole damn lot of the shit and there was nothing in there that was any good, you know. It was dry and dusty. It's out in the middle of the Sahara desert, man. The, the, the it's probably 100 degrees and uh, it was dry and just dusty and some of it was moldy and You know, it was just the stuff that a a novice smuggler would go ahead and entertain putting on her boats.
2: So, yeah,
0: the mountain of marijuana was made of really shitty weed. And Tommy, he didn't do shitty weed. He did pillows of the nice, fluffy stuff. Tommy has a whole process worked out. Once he'd okayed a batch, he had to move it down from the mountains where it was grown and get it loaded up on ships bound for America. And... This was no easy task. Even the CIA recognized this. In one declassified report from 1982, it says quote, The complicated logistics of smuggling Colombian marijuana, which calls for massive quantities to be hauled over long distances for large amounts of capital, attracted a new class of smuggling organizations structured along corporate lines. Yep, that's Tommy. And to tackle those logistics, at least at the start of the process, he used mules and or donkeys.
4: Yeah, a lot it takes a lot. I I mean okay, like it's like take a donkey, they're more sure footed and uh they can't carry as much as a mule. So a donkey could probably carry two hundred pounds, maybe two fifty, you know? And then a mule is another matter. A mule could probably carry four hundred. Wow. So was the mule preferable to the donkey? The donkeys were more sure-footed.
0: Mules, well, sometimes they slipped. And Tommy saw this for himself on one very harrowing part of the trail. They were traversing it at night.
4: He had all his Heinekens, all our Heinekens. He had like six cases of Heinekens on that mule. And what happened, there's a washout area where the water runs down the mountain, and it carved a little V, and I was watching it, and the mule... Uh, stepped in that bee and went over the mountain with the Heineken. So,
2: you're, you, did you actually see your mule with all the Heinekens go over the edge? Yep. At
4: the end of this ledge, there's a, there's a little waterfall, you know, like a, a shower built into the side of the cliff at the end. And then there's a pool of water where there's like a uh, it's like a big jacuzzi. I mean, probably 10-15 feet across and three or four feet deep. And uh, I was sitting in there drinking some uh, cognac and uh, watching the mule, and he stepped off. And I'm telling you what, you never heard anything like that in your life. I could never, I mean, it was the cross between a, a horse kneeing and a donkey baying. I mean, it was terrible sound. He hit the rocks, and that was the end of him.
0: Once it was down from the mountains, Tommy and his associates had to move the stuff to the coast in trucks. There were always some military checkpoints, but they knew the right guys to pay off. Tommy's entire business model, by the way, it matches up almost exactly with the intel that the CIA gathered at the time. It's almost as if the CIA's report was describing Tommy's operations. The report mentioned convoys of up to 200 mules and the fact that smugglers typically place bribes for each shipment. The last stage of the process, according to the CIA report, was loading the weed into canoes bringing it out to supply boats. Tommy did this in Taganga, a little fishing village located on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Tommy says that the harbor was run by the native tribes and that the chief was a good friend of his. These locals helped him load the weed onto smuggling ships that pulled into the harbor.
4: And they would use these uh, dugouts. You know, they take a tree, and the biggest tree they can find, they chop it down and they carve out a nice boat make it into a boat and they had one dug out there i swear to god it was the biggest thing i ever saw It was like i don't know but it was from a big tree it's got all got to be one piece and uh that thing held five thousand pounds
2: (laughs) that's basically a canoe uh, that can hold five thousand pounds of marijuana yeah it was a a one-of-a-kind
0: and that was tommy's business model Finding the fluffy pillows of weed, moving it by donkey, then by truck, and then a giant dugout canoe, loading into shrimp boats, smuggling it back to the US, and selling it in Michigan. It all worked really well. But eventually, Tommy says the business wore him down. He got ripped off on one load. He decided, you know what? Time to retire. And really retire this time. He met a Swedish woman on the beach in Taganga, and she got pregnant. He decided he wanted to follow her home, to Sweden. But first, he needed to make sure that he couldn't be extradited from there. And remember, these are the days before the internet. So he decides he needs to go to, well, a law library. A really good law library.
4: The International Law Library at Harvard University.
2: You, You, like, went up to Cambridge, Mass for this?
4: Yeah. I went there specifically for that. I had a good time, too. <laughs> I love sitting on that bridge watching all them guys rowing their boats and shit like that. But uh, what I did is I had some IDs. I had a forger at that time, and he was a really good forger, and he forged some paperwork for me, you know, to that uh, I was a visiting prov- professor from the University of Florida so I could have access to the library. And every day I'd go into the university and study the extradition treaty a case law with uh, Sweden and the United States, and I figured out that according to the law of reciprocity that uh, there's no way they could get me for conspiracy or for the one I was really worried about, the one that uh, had me with life with no parole plus 70 years, was continuous criminal enterprise. Well, continuous criminal enterprise is based on predicate offenses This didn't match any Swedish laws whatsoever. It was non-extraditable. It was non-extraditable crime, and so was conspiracy. So I figured, I'm cool in Sweden.
0: So he moved to Sweden, married the woman he met on the beach, and became a dad. It all worked out pretty well for about three years, until the U.S. entered into a new extradition treaty with Sweden. So much for all of his sleuthing at the Harvard Law Library. Tommy was indicted for a conspiracy to import marijuana and extradited back to the United States. He ended up spending six years in prison before he was finally released in 1990. He says he's very proud that he never cooperated with the government. He now lives down in St. Petersburg. He's reinvented himself as a computer expert and he actually got a degree in digital forensics at the age of 71. He's working on a memoir called Reefer recounting all of his life stories. And let me tell you, there are a lot of them. Deep Cover is produced by Jacob Smith and edited by Karen Shikurji. Original music and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra, fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Mia Lobel is Pushkin's executive producer. Special thanks to Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Letal Malad, Maya Koenig, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Khadija Holland, and Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin Industries. Additional thanks to Jeff Singer at Stoway Entertainment. You can learn more about Tommy Powell on his website, tommypowell.net. And stay tuned to this feed for more bonus episodes and announcements about Season 2. I'm Jake Halpern.
2: All right, Tommy. I got to run. but... um. All right, brother. It's been nice real. you,
4: Jake. We'll, we'll be able we'll to get together and drink some Agua Diente.
2: That would be great. I look forward to it. Thanks, you man. you ever had it? No, I haven't. Did you drink
4: Agua Diente? <laughs> no. <laughs> the last time I drank Agua Diente, uh, I drank it with the remains of my partner Victor in the Agua Diente with his two brothers. All three of us, they, we put some of the ashes in the Agua Diente and did shots of Agua Diente with his bones in it.
2: You, You drank your friend? Yeah. How He's was dead. that, drinking the remains of your friend? Fucking horrible.
3: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.